Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, Ari Pesco, our Electricity Law Initiative Director, talks with electricity market expert Dr. Jacob Mays about capacity markets. We hope you enjoy the podcast. This is Ari Pesco, director of the Electricity Law Initiative, and I'm here with Dr. Jacob Mays, just completed his PhD at Northwestern University. Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And first off, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, So I want to talk about your recent paper called Asymmetric Risk and Fuel Neutrality in Capacity Markets that you wrote along with David Morton of Northwestern and Richard O'Neill of FERC. Before I get there, though, I want to take a step back because we're going to talk about capacity markets. And really what we're going to be getting at is investment in electric generation. So I want to start at the beginning in the early 20th century where it used to be that the uh, utilities that provided electric service to consumers were also the primary builders of electric generation capacity. And under that model, Utilities essentially finance that through rates paid by consumers. And that model went south when some of these utility projects uh, went way over budget. And the problem with this model was that consumers essentially were on the hook for those cost overruns. So they faced all of the risk uh, from these the downside of these projects. So the innovation that happened in the late 90s was these energy markets that formed. Uh, Wholesale energy markets regulated by FERC. And we've talked about those previously here with with Bill Hogan, with Jesse Jenkins, but what we haven't talked about is how those energy markets connect to capacity investment. So can you make that connection for us? Right, so in principle, if you you design energy markets uh, correctly, uh, what happens is that the, the revenue that generators are able to earn from the sale of energy and ancillary services in those uh, energy markets is, uh, is enough to incentivize uh, the construction of new generation. And um, if the prices in the energy markets are high enough uh, and set correctly, then everything works out and you get the right level of investment and generation capacity. But in contrast to the vertically integrated setting, the risk is borne by the investors who are making the decision to uh, make that investment. So that's a key shift going from the risk on consumers to now shifting the risk in these energy markets onto investors. And so we had in this country about 10 years of energy markets before capacity markets were a thing. Um, so you know, what, what sort of happened here? Why did we even have capacity markets? Why weren't the energy markets enough to give us the investment that we wanted? What they found in the early days of the uh, deregulated markets is that uh, when we had enough capacity on the system to meet uh, the the reliability requirement or targets that we had set, the prices didn't actually get high enough to support that capacity. So there's a couple things going on. Number one is that there were a lot of issues with market power early on, and that led uh, regulators and market operators to put in a variety of price caps and offer caps that prevented the prices from getting too high. So there's these caps put in place as a market power mitigation tool. And then in addition to that, there's various actions that uh, operators of the electricity systems will take uh, responding to uh, situations as they, uh, as they come up 
that are unpriced by the markets. And so when they take those actions, they in general have the effect of suppressing prices. Uh, the, the overall impact of this is, has been referred to as the missing money problem. So there's not enough revenue to sustain the level of generation investment that you would need to satisfy uh, the the reliability targets that you've set. Right. So it's important to say, right, that when these markets were starting out, the capacity already existed. It was just sort of being transferred from one regulatory model to another, one pricing structure to another. And we already had a reliable system when we made that transition. But the problem was that what we thought we were going to get new investment and more efficient capacity, and that wasn't quite happening. Um, one issue you mentioned, I want to just make sure we define it, is market power, because I think that's going to come up in our discussion of capacity markets. Can you just explain what, what that means? So what market power really boils down to is that a, a generator has the ability through its uh, manipulating its offer to change the price that's arising in the market. So if you run into a situation where you're short on capacity, that is true of a lot of generators. So if they withhold, if they uh, say that they're uh, you know, they have a unit offline or uh, they can only produce up to uh, a, a, a smaller amount, then, uh, then that will have a gigantic impact on the price that arises in the market. And so they're, they're withholding capacity or withholding energy with the purpose of driving up the right. price. Right. And only, um, not every generator can do that. There's only certain generators who sort of have the, the power right. to do that. Right. And it's very difficult to differentiate between a very high price arising from the exercise of market power, which is something we want to avoid, versus a legitimate high price uh, that's, a, that's a signal that there's legitimate scarcity in the market and we need people to come off the system or, or generators to, uh, to come onto the system. So the bottom line was in the early days of these wholesale energy markets, this is sort of the early 2000s, um, you know, people weren't satisfied with the amount of investment coming in because prices were too low to bring in that investment. So how to capacity, what, what's the, bring us then to sort of how we got to the capacity market solution. So in the, right, in the early 2000s uh, to mid 2000s, uh, a number of people started formulating the idea of, okay, well, we have this missing money. Uh, the, the prices don't get to the levels that they need to in theory to support the level of capacity we think we need. So let's put in a capacity market that basically replaces that missing money. Uh, so if we can uh, essentially calculate what the, the what we think the prices need to be in theory, and subtract the prices what the prices actually are in practice, uh, then that's an estimate of the uh, the revenue that we need to make up through some other means. So it sounds like what you're saying is they decided how much money there should be, and then sort of reversed engineered that outcome. Is that a fair way to? I think that's a fair way of characterizing it. I think that what you really start with is uh, you have some engineering judgment on what the total amount of capacity that you need in the system is to satisfy the reliability requirement that's uh, set by, uh, in, in this case, NERC. So we have a, a requirement of no loss, uh, a one, one day in 10 years requirement in terms of how infrequently we have involuntary load shedding. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, so you can calculate the amount of capacity required uh, in order to deliver that kind of reliability standard. And so that's that's the um, system operator. It's usually the regional transmission organization that's sort of setting the demand 
in the market. Um, and um, the, what other sort of factors? I guess I guess what I'm getting at here is there there's sort of a nomenclature issue of whether or not this is a market or whether this is a market-based mechanism, because the 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 market operator is setting the demand. And they're also these days setting various performance characteristics. So, for example, in some of the capacity markets that have evolved um, in PJM and in New England, um, you know, the capacity needs to meet some performance standard. And the market operator also comes up with a penalty structure and a bonus structure. Um, and so, I guess I'm I'm wondering sort of how you see this. Um, this is sort of part of the process of, of getting the money that we think there should be, right? So we're sort of right. engineering this solution, and there's a lot of these variables that, that go into it. Yeah, so I, I think there's a, at least two issues uh, that you just raised. One is, so is this a market or is this a market-based mechanism? And uh, one of the interesting features here is that if you if you do an economic analysis on what the value of reliability is, what the, what's the value of lost load, you usually get something around... Uh, well, it ranges, but in the five to twenty thousand dollar per megawatt hour range. If you instead do the start with the engineering requirement on the one day and ten years, and calculate the value of lost load implied by that, it's about two hundred thousand dollars a megawatt hour, uh, or in that range. So it's about ten times higher. So, uh, so the reliability standard is far high, implied uh, that's enforced in the capacity markets is far higher than what we might expect to arise in a in a pure uh, market type setting in a pure market where sort of consumers could decide how much they're willing to pay for that reliability is that it's, the pure exactly. market exactly if so if if the if the estimates of the value of lost load of something like $10,000 a megawatt hour mm-hmm. are, are close to accurate yeah. uh, then then we think consumers would choose a far lower uh, level of reliability than uh, than the one day and 10 year standard so the market operators are Procuring more capacity than people would otherwise procure. That's uh, that's the inference. I mean, it, it it's it's not really up to them in the sense that they they this is how they interpret the the NERC standard. So um, it's a uh, it's it's rational on their part in that sense. But uh, there is certainly this conflict between the economic and the engineering conceptions of of, of what it means to be reliable. And one thing that um, has changed over time in these markets that have capacity markets. Maybe we should stop there and just talk about, you know, just note that not all markets have these capacity markets today. That, that is true, although I think uh, there, there is some confusion along these lines as well. So uh, ERCOT in Texas certainly does not have uh, a capacity market. And the expectation in ERCOT is that, the, that all of the revenues that generators earn in, in ERCOT ultimately derived from the sale of energy and ancillary services. That's a little bit different from the case in CAISO and SPP, where uh, the load-serving entities in those markets have a capacity obligation that they have to satisfy. So even if there isn't a market there, uh, they have to procure capacity, either through bilateral contracts or through uh, resources that they themselves own. Uh, And uh, they are providing the extra revenue uh, to to those units directly. Right. So um, those markets don't have the sort of centralized capacity construct, market-based mechanism that we're talking about here, but they do impose requirements on utilities. Right. Uh, there, 
there has been a continued reevaluation of, of what we actually need from these capacity markets. So if, if, if we think about it as uh, we could construct the, uh, the prices as they kind of should be in a theoretically ideal market and compare that to the prices that actually come about in the, in the real world market and, uh, and compute that difference. If you do that accurately, you have to take into account uh, generator failures, uh, how well the output of generators uh, corresponds to the needs of the system, uh, the locations of the generators, because the LMPs can be quite different in, uh, in different locations, depending on the transmission constraints. And, uh, and all of these are uh, pretty uh, difficult things to ascertain. Mm -hmm. So we've had issues with, in PJM, in the polar vortex in 2014, a lot of units were uh, offline and unable to perform when uh, we needed them in that January. And uh, that prompted PJM and, and ISO New England as well to reevaluate the, uh, the performance standards for generators and make sure that they were actually able to deliver on the, the capacity obligation. In California, they've had issues with uh, flexibility. So there's no explicit recognition of flexibility characteristics in the capacity markets. And California has decided uh, that that's insufficient and they need to have a separate designation on how much flexible capacity uh, resource uh, the LSEs need to uh, supply. So I think this is a good opportunity to get into your research in your paper because you know what you've just articulated is that now the market operators are not just setting the amount of capacity, but they're also setting various characteristics for that capacity as well. And in theory, these are all just based on performance. You just have to meet certain performance characteristics. It doesn't matter um, you know, what sort of fuel you're using, whether you're wind or solar or natural gas. Um, as long as you meet these sort of objective criteria, you can qualify for the market and get paid. Um, in the market. And that's where I think your research comes in, because you're showing that that's um, ostensibly true, but, but it actually it leads towards particular results. Right. So uh, what I wanted to say in the paper is that even if you get that perfectly, if you figure out all of the, uh, all of the nuances of the how do we value variable resources, and how do we value storage resources, and how do we account for generator failures, and all, all of those nuances, you'll still have uh, this, this other effect that uh, I think is, is, was recognized in the, uh, in the original conception of the capacity markets, but, but not fully, uh, the implications were not fully thought out. So one of the big uh, impacts, the financial impact of having a capacity market is that you replace these very volatile uh, scarcity prices that may, uh, may occur only once in a, a couple of years or, uh, or, or even more infrequently, uh, depending on the, the setup of the market. And you're replacing those very volatile uh, revenues with a very stable revenue stream coming from the capacity market. Right. And that volatility, just to be clear, is in the energy market. Right. Um, and that's what happens in these energy-only markets, that prices can go up to thousands of dollars a megawatt hour during really stressful periods on the system, high demand uh, periods. Um, and so you can have particular generators who are really just making all their money just from those extreme right. situations. And when you have a capacity market, you sort of you set a price. They're always accompanied am I right, by, a, by a price cap in the energy market. So you don't get that sort of extreme volatility. And so that's, that connects to the missing money, right? 
Right. So you you always are uh, you you have either an explicit or an implicit price cap in the sense that you you have so much capacity on the system that uh, oh you never get to that you never get volatility. prices that that high. Um, and what what does that do to investment? How does that how does that bias investment? So the uh, the the paper argues that uh, the this has an asymmetric. So the asymmetric in the title comes from the the fact that uh, different generation technologies have different risk profiles, different exposure to the uh, the prices coming out of the energy market. And uh, the point that uh, the paper makes is that uh, peaking plants. So these are plants with uh, high marginal costs are particularly exposed to the scarcity prices. They are, they're the ones that are really reliant on those uh, rare occurrences of extremely high prices in an energy-only right. setting. Because these, these plants are normally not economic, it's only when prices get really high right. that, that they can make money on the system. Yeah. So the effect is when you, when you introduce a capacity market to replace those uh, high scarcity prices, the, the, revenue profi- the risk profile of those uh, generators is uh, completely collapsed. They, they guarantee a, a substantial portion of their revenue. Uh, so I just took some hypothetical numbers, and if you have a plant that has a $100 uh, megawatt hour operating cost in PJM, it's expecting to earn about 90% of its operating profits from the capacity markets. When uh, you put that same unit in ERCOT in Texas, there is no capacity market, and it's going to completely rely on those scarcity periods. Exactly. Right. Um, and so does that mean that, is that peaker unit then more attractive in one market versus the other? How we think about the investment decision here? Well, all other things equal, you would expect it to be more attractive in PJM. The, uh, the reason that all other things are not equal is that there's a 7.5% reserve margin in Texas and a 28% reserve margin or something like that in PJM. So the, uh, there's, there's these, these other factors affecting the uh, the expected revenue that you would generate from investing in, in the two markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that you touch on in your paper, um, I, mean, I guess I want to go a little bit deeper on this risk point, um, because when someone invests in one of these peaking plants, um, they're usually, I would imagine, in some way they're hedging that investment. Um, can you talk about how that affects the two different models? Right. So there is a... Uh, so, so one, we have this built-in hedge from the capacity market, uh, so that that's one aspect of it. But then, uh, but then investors in generation will also uh, go to the the banks uh, and uh, try to sign contracts to hedge risk that way through through a very a variety of swaps and and contracts, uh, and then in certain cases, other generators. So this is less common with peakers, but uh, renewables uh, will sign longer-term contracts with uh, commercial entities or, or utilities that are willing to sign longer-term PPAs uh, to, to hedge risk that way. Let's go back to the, the peaker example, because I want to understand um, a little bit more as to why the capacity market sort of changes the risk profile there. And I think what you're saying is because the investor in that asset is less reliant on that, that scarcity price that may only come up once a year or something like that. Um, so does that, that, that would then make it a, a lower risk investment in PJM, right? Right. As compared to, right. You, you did mention that there is sort of this 
in, in Texas today, we kind of know we're going to have some scarcity pricing just because of the low reserve margin. But in general, that would that would make it a, a lower cost investment for an investor in PJM. Is right. that right? Right. Uh, you would expect the cost of capital to, to be lower uh, because they are, uh, as opposed to an energy-only market where they might literally earn zero uh, net profit in a, in a given year, uh, they have a certain amount of guaranteed operating profit coming from the uh, the capacity market revenues, which should be at least enough to uh, cover their debt mm-hmm. for the uh, for that portion of the uh, the finance cost. Um, and your paper explains that the and as you just explained, the capacity market changes the risk profile. But I want to get to understand a little more about why that um, the, the sort of connection between operating capital costs and the capacity market. So can you go into that a little bit and explain why a unit with a lower operating cost, like a wind unit, for example, uh, doesn't benefit as much from the capacity construct as the peaker unit does? Uh, right. So it, it will benefit from the capacity construct a little bit in the sense that uh, it, it does earn some operating profits from the capacity market. The, the difference is that if you have a lower operating cost unit that's uh, being dispatched whenever it can, it's exposed to the entire range of uh, risk coming from the energy prices. So, if you, uh, so I think I said before that if you have a unit with a hundred dollar megawatt hour uh, mm-hmm. uh, operating cost, it would expect to earn about ninety percent of its revenues or operating profits from the uh, capacity market. If you have a unit with a ten dollar megawatt hour, uh, ten dollar megawatt hour uh, cost, it would expect to earn about seventeen percent of its operating profits from the capacity market. So it does get an advantage in that, in the sense that that 17% is de-risked, but mm-hmm. that uh, obviously has a, has a much smaller impact on the overall uh, risk profile than a unit that's de-risking a full 90% of its uh, profits. And I guess maybe I'll think about this the wrong way, but when we're talking about, um, you know, that the peaker unit has a low capital cost compared to the wind unit as well. Um, and so is that what we're talking about here, that because it's able to get such a significant chunk of that debt from the capacity construct, it's a relatively low-risk investment? Right. Okay, I finally got it. <laughs> um, and so what that, what that means for investors is that if you're looking for a lower-risk investment, you're going to go for the uh, lower capital cost, higher operating cost investment. Right, with, with the additional assumption that, uh, that the wind farm in this case hasn't been able to go out and get a PPA or, or some other contract that equivalently hedges its risk mm-hmm. because that uh, that would uh, reduce the cost of capital and, and, and guarantee revenue for them in, in an, an analogous way. We've seen since really the PJM market started in the late 90s, natural gas has been the dominant um, sort of new, you know, new investment has, has been natural gas-fired capacity, and there's a couple pieces of that story. You know, the, the the typical facts are that we've had inc- you know, better technology in natural gas-fired power plants. Combined cycle generation has really uh, improved a lot. And then combine that with the fact that natural gas prices have been persistently really low, um, that's going to motivate additional investment in natural gas, and particularly since PJM is sitting on top of the largest shale formation. Um, and so you seem to be, you're suggesting here that your paper suggests rather that there's this additional factor that's kind of turbocharging the natural gas investment, and um, you're, you're adding another 
piece to this this story. Right, and and I I don't uh, I certainly don't claim that this mechanism is more important than the the economic fundamentals of the uh, the shale revolution and the uh, the improvements in combined cycle technology. But I do think it's it's there's potential that it's part of the story, and even if it isn't part of the story yet, if you think about uh, moving forward into a lower carbon grid of the future, you uh, would expect this. Uh, uh, to become increasingly relevant. So if you wanted to address this issue, how might you go about thinking about, th about that? Uh, well, I think uh, there's, this is the, the classic academic response, but, you know, more research is needed. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I think one of the big uh, uh, issues moving forward is that uh, in, in theory, this uh, isn't a problem because the banks, the financial industry can step in and create the uh, trading products that we need to, uh, to support the risk trading that is, is discussed in the, in the paper. Uh, in practice, I'm not sure uh, uh, how much exactly we, we trust the financial, financial industry to, to create those types of products and, and push us in the direction that we want to go. And there's a sense in which the very existence of capacity markets kind of implies that we don't fully uh, trust the financial markets in this regard. So, uh, so, so one direction is you say we're going to uh, get rid of the capacity markets and go to the energy-only design and, and let the banks figure it out. So let's just assume that capacity markets are here to stay because this is an entrenched regulatory model and it's going to be tough to get rid of it. How might you think about reforming capacity markets? Well, I think uh, one step that we seem to be moving in the direction of uh, anyway is for capacity markets to be less important. And so with the uh, implementation of operating reserve demand curves, for instance, which should uh, increase revenues coming from energy and ancillary services. That makes the capacity markets uh, less relevant moving forward. So the, the more we can do on that front, uh, I think uh, uh, the, the better. Let me just mention that we talked about those with, with Bill Hogan in a previous discussion. So right. people want to catch up on that, go look for our earlier episode on that. Um, but really, that, that's sort of, I mean, the reason we have capacity markets in the first place, as we said, is because the energy markets weren't working, essentially. They weren't, the prices weren't high enough. And back then, you know, when capacity markets were being debated, people said, well, let's fix the energy market. Let's not do capacity markets. So now we're sort of back to that solution. Well, we have capacity markets, but let's de-emphasize them by going back to fixing the energy market. Right. Right. And I, and I think if the, if the capacity markets or some resource adequacy requirement still becomes, uh, uh, it, it still continues to play a big part in, uh, in the overall uh, paradigm, then we, we ought to think about supplementing the existing capacity markets with different sorts of long-term contracts and financial hedges. Um, is, is there, I, I guess you talk about in the paper um, that states with retail competition where end users can sort of pick the company that's going to sell them power, um, that those are typically short-term agreements and that in a sense the, could be a barrier to these longer-term contracts, is that right? Right, and this is something that I don't think there's a there's a great understanding of. But uh, if if you look at the types of deals that 
are structured in vertically integrated markets. Often there's 20-year contracts, 30-year contracts for the generators. And if you look at the Implicit uh, contracts usually, implicit, it's, right? right? It's sort of, it's they're yeah. they, they earning their money through the retail rates and it's right. typically depreciated on like a 30-year basis. Right. And there's this general conception that uh, customers are very risk-averse and, and that's why, that's what justifies these long-term contracts. And then if you go to the deregulated markets, what you observe is one to two-year contracts and no evidence that the customers themselves are risk-averse. So uh, there's... Uh, Kind of a mystery here, and and what 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 role do the customers actually want to play in in this? Yeah, and so is is there a mismatch then between what states are doing on the retail side, where the because the states are the ones that are um, you know really regulating uh, you know the interactions between the consumer and whoever is selling them power and delivering them power versus what's happening at the wholesale side with these capacity markets? Should there be a better alignment? Between these two systems? I think that uh, certainly we would like to see the demand side of the market more engaged on all levels. This starts from the short-term uh, day-ahead and real-time markets, but then uh, going up to this, these longer-term investment decisions, you would like to see more uh, uh, action and, uh, in this case, more disciplined hedging coming from the, uh, the demand side of the market. Yeah. Just to switch gears a little bit, one... Um area that I've done a lot of legal research on is state um, programs to support existing nuclear plants, um, where you have these plants, because wholesale prices are so low, they're um, choosing either to retire or go to state legislatures and ask for payments. Um, and you mentioned in your paper uh, some of the, I think you mentioned a problem associated with with the phenomena that you're studying and nuclear plants. Could you explain what right. that is? Right. So, so I think that looking at the economics of these plants, and there's a little bit of a debate on uh, are they losing money, exactly how much money money are they losing. Uh, but, uh, but if you think about it in the grand scheme, these are units that are uh, could potentially produce power for, uh, let's say, $38 a megawatt hour for the next 20 years. And historically, that's an extraordinarily good deal. So there is a little bit of a mystery to, to me. Uh, why has nobody just bought that uh, power, signed them up for a long-term contract and said, uh, mm -hmm. I'm willing to take that bet. Uh, maybe I don't think prices will get that high, but it, it, it's at least worth having in the portfolio. And uh, the fact that those contracts don't exist, uh, uh, either my intuition is wrong about the economics and they just don't make sense, or the generators think that they can get a better deal from the state regulators, or uh, or there's some other explanation, but uh, but but the the ex uh, the proposal that the paper makes is is maybe that there just is no uh, viable counterparty that's both uh, financially viable and legally uh, tenable uh, that would be able to sign a contract like that, and uh, uh, and then if that's the case, that's a that, that would be a market issue that we would want to address. Right, and this this actually gets back to what we were just talking about with uh, retailers only doing kind of two year deals where, uh, you know, a retail entity in one of these restructured states just wouldn't sign an eight-year deal with a nuclear plant. Um, so again, there's sort of this mismatch between what consumers are signing up for and what might actually support the kind of capacity right. that we would want to see in the market. So what's the big takeaway from your research for um, designing markets that are going to enable a low-carbon grid? 
Well, one, one of the things that this has been a popular topic of conversation on what does the mark design of the future look like? And one of the things that uh, a number of us have, who are working on this have noticed is that in theory, nothing changes. And uh, what the paper is, is saying, though, is that uh, the move to a low carbon future where everything is near zero marginal cost does exacerbate some of the issues that are already present in the markets. And uh, one of those is the uh, implementation of the capacity markets and, and the way we uh, handle risk. So uh, that's kind of uh, where this is trying to go. So this all comes back to the idea of risk, which is sort of what we started with, where initially in the vertically integrated model, you had consumers on the hook for all the risk. Now in the energy only market and in the capacity market as well, it's it's the investors who have the risk, but then it's a question of how do we allocate that risk among investors, developers, consumers. We still we're still talking about how to allocate that risk. I mean, we haven't quite figured out the right, right. mix of that. The market What's the hasn't role figured of out the consumers, the banks, the the investors, and and how do uh, how do we manage that risk in the in the most efficient way? And capacity markets rearrange that risk, but maybe not in a way that's necessarily compatible with a low carbon grid of the future. Possibly. And possibly, yeah. <laughs> Good academic answer. Right. And so the question is, do we have regulators try to reallocate that risk again, or do we just leave it to the market to reallocate that risk? That's a good summary. Okay. All right. Uh, Dr. Mays, thanks very much for talking to us about this today. Thanks. Thanks.